Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday, time for a Vault episode. This one originally aired on November 26th, 2020. This was actually an episode about Thanksgiving food, which got uh, way weirder and more interesting than, than you would expect. This one sounds exciting, but I have no memory of it, <laughs> um, even though we just did it last year. We, we talked about holy gravy. Oh, yes, yes. No, okay. I do remember it now. Yes, the holy gravy uh, discussion is pretty fun. Well, let's ladle it up and uh, enjoy. Hello, listeners. This is Seth, the audio producer for Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Uh, this is just a quick note to let you know that in this episode, uh, Robert's microphone sounds a little different uh, compared with our normal episodes, but uh, it's just a one-time thing, little glitch in the old technology during these COVID times. But uh, do not worry. We've cleaned it up as best we can and uh, should be still a very pleasant listening experience. And we'll be back to normal next week. Thank you very much. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about some American Thanksgiving food. Rob, I've noticed that over the past few years... Every year you say something like, this year we're going to lean into the holidays. Yes. <laughs> but we've been doing it a lot. And I, I think one, I'm wondering about something psychological. Is it that you think if we actually do content about the holidays on the show, the holidays will, we will get through them faster? Um, maybe that's part of it. it. It does kind of extend from my personal philosophy of like, of, you know, in the past I have seen Halloween as sort of the end of the year and then all this mm. other stuff is just kind of added on and isn't as fun and maybe it's more of a chore. And then I realized, well, that's not getting me anywhere. You know, I don't want to be a sad sack, um, you know, or a, a grumpus through the, <laughs> no, the holidays. Be a happy sack. Yeah. So, uh, so the idea of, you know, lean into it, find, find something to enjoy about the holidays, uh, find the, the bits that, that work for me and celebrate those. And, uh, yeah, I think maybe part of it is like, yeah, if you're into it, it's going to, it's going to move a little faster. It's going to, it's going to move along, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's part of it. And, uh, also occasionally we have advertisers who say, who come to us and say, Hey, what are your holiday episodes for this year? So oh, yeah. it's, Great. it's good to have Thanks. one or two yeah. in the, uh, you know, in the sheath. <laughs> but you, you brought up a topic that I actually thought was pretty interesting because uh, I, I'd never considered this at length before. And it's the idea of the poultry wishbone. So, so that's where we're going to be starting today. Uh, I don't, did you ever actually do the thing as a kid where you take out the turkey's wishbone and break it? Or was that just something you saw on TV? We would do it at some point or another. And I, I it's not something I remember doing every year. It's not a tradition I continue. I have continued on when I'm around cooked turkeys. Uh, so I don't have like a strong attachment to it, but I do remember doing it. But I probably did it because I saw it on TV. Yeah, I, I'd say me too. Uh, we we figure at some point we tried it at my house, and I figured out. I don't remember the details, but I figured out intuitively how to always get the bone to break in my favor, and I yeah. and I definitely did. Ah. <laughs> That's a real life hack there, magical yeah. life hack. Uh, because yeah, it, it generally the idea is you take this wishbone, this this little U or V shaped bone in the turkey. Um, you'll also, of course, find it in a chicken. We'll get into all the the places you can find it here in a bit. But 
the idea is what it's it's U or V shaped. Two different people grab an end of it, and then you bend, you break, and whoever gets the big part, whoever gets the the lion's share of the turkey bone, gets it, to live. Gets to live, or what? They get a they they get a wish. Is that the thing, or it's good luck? How oh, maybe that's what is why it's called a wishbone. I don't know. I mean, it's some kind of luck Thunderdome. You, yeah, you, you I, I, get the good end of the bargain. It's not qu- clear exactly what the bargain is. Yeah, it's it's one of these things that uh, it, it seems pretty. It is pretty harmless because it's almost completely devoid of uh, of any kind of magical thinking. I've never encountered anyone who took the wishbone seriously. Like, yes, now I have a wish that I may call upon. Or, oh, wow, my, this day is going to be great. The rest of the, the, the day is going to be wonderful because I got the big end of the wishbone. But it has <laughs> what feels like this residual magic that has, uh, that has been passed down. Like something, like, like the turkey itself. You know, it has been so cooked and rendered, it, it's almost unrecognizable anymore. But there mm-hmm. is a semblance of the original uh, organism here. And I think that's, that's kind of what we see with the wishbone. Yeah, oh, maybe even in an evolutionary sense with some wishbones and some types of uh, birds or bird-like organisms. Uh, But what I was thinking about the wishbone is maybe the tradition would would be more powerful if instead of saying the winner gets something good you say the loser the side the one who gets the bad side of the break gets something bad like those email forwards that would say you know uh, like if you get the wrong side of the wishbone you will see a ghost face in the bathroom mirror or something like that Ooh, or how about this one if you get the short end of the wishbone you're the one who has to pick all the meat off the turkey carcass for soups and sandwiches the next day Mm-hmm. If you get the short end of the wishbone, you have to eat the turkey breast that has been cooked to 190 degrees Fahrenheit <laughs> and is as dry as a pile of sawdust, and you don't get any gravy to moisten it. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the only hope for those pieces is the is, is the turkey sandwich the next day, where you can liberally apply mayonnaise to it. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, uh, it rescues everything. It is, Though yeah. I do, I do want to talk about gravy later in the episode and the role that gravy serves because I think one of the big functions of gravy, in addition to just making the best of a pan that's got some good fond on it, is rescuing utterly lifeless base foods. <laughs> All right, so yeah, this, we're gonna we're gonna start with wishbone. We're gonna get into the turkey a little bit, and then we'll and we'll finish off with the gravy. The gravy will be necessary to go on top. Okay, so. But, but, like, biologically, what is a wishbone? I've actually wondered this before. It seems like it's in a weird place on a bird. What what does it do? So, yeah, we're talking about an actual bone. It is the, the furcula, um, or if you're talking plural, furculi. And it is a bone between the neck and the breast. It's flexible. It stores energy that's then released during the wing stroke. It's formed via the fusion of two clavicles. It's essential to flight, and so we we see it in all modern birds. Even the flightless penguin has a furcula, though it's structurally a bit different to accommodate flipper action rather than flying. So it's sort of like, um, almost kind of like a spring or a little structural thing within the breast that that, uh, provides structural support when the breast muscles are powering back and forth to move the wings. Yeah, I think that would be a fair way to think about it. And... Uh, yeah, so it's it's just an essential part of powered flights in modern in powered flight in modern birds, or in the case of the penguin, powered swimming. Um, the interesting thing, though, that is that even flightless terrestrial ratites. We discussed ratites on the show in the past. We're talking about things like uh, ostriches, the emu, 
Um, the, these are birds that no longer fly, but they retain uh, vestigial aspects of their wings. And you do find the remains of a wishbone in there, although in these cases it is almost entirely absent. Now that p- probably raises a question. If you listen to the show for uh, you know the past year or so, you might remember our episodes on the MOA. Mm-hmm. Uh, the MOA, of course, is this now extinct uh, flightless bird that was just simply amazing. Uh, you'll have to go back and listen to those episodes for our full argument on the, the wonder of the MOA. But one of the many wonderful things about it is that it is this giant ratite, this enormous uh, flightless bird that not only lost the use of its wings, but completely lost its wings. Like, it had no wings. It is a completely two-limbed land creature, unlike virtually anything else you could think of. What the snake is to the lizard, this bird is to to the flying bird. Yes. So my immediate question then with Moa on the mind was, how about the Moa? Does, did the Moa have, as far as we know, have anything like a wishbone, like even just the slimmest remnant of a wishbone? And I looked around in, in some of the sources we used for the Moa episode, and I wasn't finding anything about it. So I actually uh, looked up uh, a a researcher who had worked on some MOA uh, stuff before, Dr. Charlotte A. Brassy of Manchester Metropolitan University. And uh, I exchanged a couple of emails uh, with them just asking, like, is there, how about the MOA? Did the MOA have a wishbone? Mm -hmm. And this is uh, what they told me. Quote, I don't think MOA had Ferculi to speak of. The different species of MOA vary a bit in their shoulder region. Dinornis, the really big ones, did have a vestigial clavicle, which uh, are, are what eventually fused together to form the furcula, but they are very small and not fused. Pachyornis and Megalepteryx moa didn't even have a vestigial clavicle, just totally absent. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Bye-bye bones. Yeah, so, uh, you know, obviously there are exceptions to the rule then, uh, but you look at modern birds, uh, stant birds and you're going to find a wishbone in there well, that's interesting and it makes me wonder since birds are the closest relatives of the extinct non-avian dinosaurs uh did dinosaurs have a have a furcula ever did they, did they have a wishbone on a on a raptor or a t-rex or something it's interesting because as, as it turns out the wishbone has an interesting place in our in the history of our understanding of dinosaurs so the seeming absence of the furcula in dinosaurs was long held as a case against the connection uh, between dinosaurs and modern birds. Hmm. And, uh, and, and we see this really even with the Archaeopteryx, discovered in the early 1900s, of which we have some pretty impressive uh, fossil evidence of. You know, a lot of these, these dinosaurs, especially when you're going back to the early 1900s, you're dealing with very incomplete fossil sets. You know, there were a lot of gaps we had to fill in, and therefore... When it comes to something like a wishbone being there or not, you can say, well, maybe it was, and we just haven't found it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the, with the Archaeopteryx, you know, some of these are very complete-looking um, uh, fossil remains, and they seem to be lacking a wishbone. So Dalo's law of irreversibility at the time uh, held that things lost to evolution would not come back, so it meant that the missing furcula in dinosaurs could not lead to modern birds. Now, we know now that Dolo's law is incorrect, and the clavicles of non-avian dinosaurs uh, serve as one of the, the key objections to this idea. But as far as dinosaurs go, yeah, the, the key thing to, to drive home is dinosaurs did have furcula. They, they, they were simply missing from our early fossil evidence in many of these creatures. 
Uh, and it's and it's a small feature after all. Uh, uh, again, we have to think about the fossil record, the the, the missing pieces that are uh, just a part of uncovering the fossil evidence of these ancient organisms. And as it turns out, the Archaeopteryx itself um, uh, actually did have these kind of uh, cartilage uh, furculi. Uh, in their uh, uh, in their bodies, what the situation was that these were these were young ones, um, uh, young Archaeopteryx in the fossils, and they they didn't have fully ossified furculi yet, and therefore um, it was softer, it was easier to lose, and it took UV examinations to pinpoint it in these well-preserved fossil remains. Oh, okay. So the lack of furculi in some dinosaurs or dinosaur bird relatives. Um, could be due not just not actually to what was present in the animal as it lived, but to biases in what types of body parts are preserved and how. Right. And then, of course, as time went by, we just found more and more fossil evidence for uh, for the for many of these dinosaurs. So, like for now, for, for right now, we know that the the T Rex itself, the mighty T Rex, had a furcula. Um, you know, it's not, you, you look at evidence uh, as examples of it and it doesn't look like the wishbone as much. It's a much more like a, a, a U shape that has been st- almost completely straightened out, uh, at least in is, is, at least as far as the way it's presented in a lot of these, uh, these fossil displays, but it is still a wishbone. I think this is clear evidence that the tiny T-Rex arms were actually wings and the T-Rex could fly. <laughs> now, uh, now that you have a, everyone has a little bit more uh, respect for the the role of the wishbone. Like, no, if you're holding a wishbone today or this uh, holiday season, you know you're 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 holding this thing that is universal to all living birds that that connects to the age of the dinosaurs. But again, most of us interact with this thing simply by plucking out of the out of the holiday carcass and then snapping mm-hmm. it in half with a friend, so that you can engage in some some lighthearted uh, divination. I could point out another thing is that uh, sometimes chefs, when roasting a chicken, will advocate removing the wishbone prior to cooking because this makes it easier to carve the breast of the bird in the end. Mm-hmm. Like this is a thing uh, – I've seen videos where the, sh- uh, the chef Thomas Keller recommends doing this. So you kind of like stick your knife in and you rub it around on the wishbone and then you pull it out with your fingers. It looks kind of gross, but it makes the breast – makes you able to take the breast off in one piece when you're done cooking. So this is this is this is a this is a good point to make because yeah we're about to get into discussions of of how the wishbone was used and interpreted by by ancient peoples and so if you're processing the carcass of a of a chicken or some chicken like uh, bird uh, it's going to be potentially something you take out early right mm-hmm. in order Possibly. to fully process the carcass and then if you do take it out or at whatever phase in the butchery that you do this uh, it is. It is something that look that has a distinctive shape. Again, U or V shape. It is going to have sort of a symbolic quality to it uh, that might be lacking in other like easily plucked pieces of the skeletal system. Sure. Yeah. So I was looking around for some more information on all of this, and I ran across a wonderful book by uh, by Janet uh, uh, Limke. Uh, that's L E M B K E, and the title of the book is "Chickens: Their Natural and Unnatural Histories." <laughs> And in this book, uh, she writes uh, you know, a great deal just about chickens and their history, obviously. But she touches on uh, on the wishbone of the chicken and things involving the snapping of the wishbone, etc. And she says that customs surrounding the wishbone may be as old as the Etruscans in what is now called Tuscany or, or Umbria. 
and then the Romans arrived, the custom passed on to them. And of course, from the Romans, we, we would see it entering into, uh, uh, ultimately into European and, uh, and British culture, and then that would have been transplanted to the New World uh, during the age of, uh, of, of uh, transatlantic uh, uh, colonization. Mm-hmm. So um, she points out that, that, first of all, you have to put this, you have to couch this, this idea of, of looking at the wishbone at all in the history of bird divination in general. And bird oh. divination is, is interesting because in, it can cover a broad category of divination, like not just cutting open a bird to, to, to poke around in it and look at its organs or bones as a way to understand the future, but also just observing birds in the sky and using the flight patterns of birds as a way to try and magically understand the patterns of the world. Yeah, uh, if you want a fuller dive on divination, by the way, you might want to go back and check out our older episode on the I Ching, which yeah. uh, w- which this has gotten me thinking about. One possibility we talk about in the episode, and obviously this would be impossible to prove, but but an idea that we play with there is that divination could actually prove useful to people, even though you can't get real hidden knowledge that's in any way accurate. It could prove useful to people just by introducing uh, motivations that spur action in what would otherwise right. be a sort of paralyzing state of of you know just not knowing anything. Yeah, it's like uh, I, I'm I'm to understand that that modern uh, sports games will sometimes begin with the flipping of a coin. Mm-hmm. You need that random event in order to make it fair that one team will have what might be an unfair advantage by starting first, right? Right. Um, and so. Um, and it gets you going. To, it's, it's, yeah, it gets you yeah. going and instead of just being at a complete standstill. That's a very good analogy. And b- birds are a perfect thing to look for in this case, right? Because birds also invite a kind of sacred understanding because birds can fly. They are able to, um, to bridge this gap between the earth and the sky, between the terrestrial world and the, the realm of clouds and stars and gods and what have you. But that doesn't mean it's just birds, of course. Uh, there's also a long ancient tradition of examining the bodies of terrestrial creatures. Uh, Babylonian texts point to the examination of sheep entrails in acts of divination. And uh, the Romans, too, famously practiced such readings of entrails, known as uh, horuspicy, especially concerning the livers of sheep and poultry. Mm-hmm. In Greece, it was known as uh, heptoscopy or heptomancy, to give it a you know more of a Dungeons and Dragons feel to it, if you want to bust out some heptomancy in your next game, is that that's also looking at livers, I think. Yeah. Now the Etruscans considered chickens sacred uh, and used their bodies in acts of divination. They would apparently dry the furcula, and touching it would bring good luck. Like the furcula itself was kind of a good luck charm. Hmm. I wonder if that has anything to do with the idea of a horseshoe being a good luck charm. That could it could be yeah. totally unrelated. But, and, but, but then again, there is there does seem to be a similarity between the, the symbols, right? Uh, similar shape. Now, uh, again, the Romans eventually adapted this, uh, adding the breakage tradition, uh, apparently. Um, and uh, and it appears to have varied d- depending on uh, who is using this tradition, whether... The big the, scoring, the big part of the wishbone or the small part was the good luck. Like who wins? <laughs> Is it the small or the big? It's kind of like drawing straws or something. I don't know. Right. You just break it and then you Calvin ball it out from there. Yeah. <laughs> 
Now, the Romans uh, subsequently then brought the tradition to England, where uh, the particular bone was often known as the Mary Thought, and then the English brought it to the New World. Now, in terms of just thinking about these acts of divination involving the bodies or the movements of animals, um, there's more to consider here. I read about uh, some of this in Animals and Divination by Peter Strzok. And he points out that among the Greeks and the Romans, these were common ways of attempting to understand what was happening and would happen in the world around you. Uh, he writes that there wasn't anything esoteric about turning to the entrails or the bones of an animal like this. It's just what you did. Quote, the ancients understood that the universe had certain inclinations built into it, which were more or less closely tied to the inclinations of the gods. So... Maybe you could think about um, uh, trying to do divination based on the behavior or the bodies or, or parts of animals as sort of like the modern thing where people think that animals know first when X is going to happen, you know, when there's going to be an earthquake or whatever, you know, some kind of natural disaster. Yeah, I mean, you could also look to the modern um, use of biomimicry and biomimetic de designs, the idea that if we're going to solve an engineering problem, let's look to, to see how evolution solved it first, see how the bodies of animals or plants solve that particular design problem. Um, I mean, these are more nuanced and scientifically accurate versions of the same thing. Like, the, I need to understand what's happening in the world. Let me look to the physical substance of the world for hints about its design. Right, and when you have a fuzzier picture of the causes and connections between all the different parts of nature, it, it might seem more logical to try to infer X from the you know the bodies of animals or something. I mean, you don't know that's not how it works. Yeah. Now, now Struck uh, in his writings here, he points uh, out that uh, Aeschylus, who lived 525 through 456 BCE, uh, summoned up much of this in the words of the Titan Prometheus in his play. Prometheus bound, uh, discussing how Prometheus instructed humans in the, quote, difficult and murky art of reading these inclinations uh, in key places, such as in the livers and thigh bones of birds. It does make me wonder to what extent we see reverberations of these ideas, even in the modern scientific undertaking of, of the autopsy or the necropsy. Uh, you know, not the procedures themselves, uh, but the sort of the grandeur afforded them in the media, you know, the mm. idea of wise individuals poking around in the bodies of not only like murder victims and, and whatnot, but I, I think to the various sci-fi scenes in which the breaking down of an alien's body or the dis disassembly of an artificial being such as a, you know, a droid or, a, or, an, or an android or a replicant or something like that reveals the inclinations of the unknown. That is interesting. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, obviously, we would say that autopsies, necropsies performed in the real world by competent professionals have an empirical basis. But the way right. they appear in media, the person doing it often might as well be a wizard. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think to like the scene in Alien where they uh, they reassemble um, Ash and, uh, and, and then manipulate his – like they're really just sort of goosing around with his various um, – uh, you know, android entrails. He's covered and, in the, the the milky stuff. Yeah, yeah, and they're able to you know to, to to juice him into getting information to reveal hidden knowledge about the predicament that they're facing. In a weird way, that scene is almost a perfect parallel of King Saul summoning up the shade of the prophet Samuel to to get advice on how to proceed against an enemy. Yeah. 
So uh, I don't know. It'd be interesting to hear what other people think about that, because it is a scene you see a lot. Again, if not not only in detective stories, but just in any kind of uh, sci-fi tale in which an alien or a robot or or any kind of artificial being is is encountered. And granted, from a scientific standpoint, it would make sense to perform an, a necropsy on an alien being if you wanted to understand how it works uh, on a biological level. Likewise, it makes sense from an, on an engineering level that you might, say, take apart a captive battle droid to try and figure out what its programming was. But I can't, I can't help but wonder if there is this kind of residual magical interpretation of the scenario as well. Totally. Now, you're probably wondering, okay, we're talking about turkeys here. Where does the turkey enter the picture? Uh, so again, we're talking about, we've been talking about the chicken here. The chicken, of course, has, um, has Asian origins, but then comes to sort of rule the world in its own way slowly as it, as it just spreads from one people to the next, becomes mm-hmm. incredibly popular. Um, the is chicken. It the, is it the, sorry, is it the case that the ancestral chicken is probably from originally from like Southeast Asia? Is that right? Yeah, I believe so. Yes. The idea that it's essential, essentially this kind of uh, jungly bird, mm-hmm. um, that uh, we long ago realized had, had value. Uh, and of course, this is how the chicken would, would make it to uh, the Americas. But there was already a bird in the Americas, and that was the turkey. Um, specifically, we we're probably thinking here about uh, Melagris gallopavo, which is the domestic turkey. Beloved um, by Ben Franklin's everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he makes a strong case. Uh, as always, for the it being the, the bird of America, and it, it in fact it is native to Eastern and Central North America, and it was first domesticated by the Mayans in uh, in, in in ancient Mexico. So naturally, surviving traditions for chicken wishbones would easily translate to the turkeys when Westerners encountered this bird. Uh, you know, here's here's something we know how to eat a chicken. Well, here's a turkey. It, it, it's natural that you would apply some of the same ideas. Uh, to the rendering of the body, uh, and for for these people, uh, though the, the the original domesticators of the turkey, uh, the bird was used for food and materials, but also had a symbolic power as well. Mm. So we we recently discussed the the Popol Vuh on um, on the podcast before. So I, I looked at this to see if there were specific mentions of the turkey, and there there is there are a couple of uh, passages that are pretty fantastic because they talk about someone running afoul of. Um, of the gods uh, be- becoming cursed, and uh, and this is what the curse looks like. Quote, even their own dogs, turkeys, tools, and houses rise against them, taking vengeance for past mistreatment. Only their descendants are the monkeys that inhabit the, the forest today. And then their dogs and turkeys told them, you caused us pain, you ate us, but now it is you whom we shall eat. Now I am the master. <laughs> Did we actually say? I, I know we talked about it in a recent episode, but the Popolvu is a is a text that contains uh, a lot of uh, uh, ancient Mayan mythology, specifically yes. a lot of the uh, beliefs and uh, like myths of the uh, Quiche Mayan people. Yes, yeah. Now, as for magical uses of the turkey itself, uh, the use of its bones in Mayan and Aztec practices, uh, I didn't find I didn't find anything particular. That does, doesn't mean it didn't exist. That doesn't mean it isn't written about. Well, and it also doesn't mean that it wasn't practiced and then just sort of lost. In the, of course, uh, uh, you know, cultural apocalypse that was uh, the arrival of Westerners in the Americas, uh, but I did find an excellent article titled "The Oscillated Turkey in Maya Thought," and this is by Maya specialist Ana Luisa Esquerdo 
Yi de la Cueva, and Maria Elena Vega Villalobos. And they discuss some of the Maya traditions and beliefs concerning the turkey. Okay, I gotta hear this. So first of all, they point out that the Maya would have had access to domesticated turkeys imported from Mexico, as well as the, the more local wild oscillated turkey. Uh, also, turkeys were royal birds, and not everyone had access to them. Mm. Uh, they were seen as stand-ins for messengers from the gods, quote, a messenger of divine will. And uh, they were used or consumed on very special occasions. They were made as sacrifices to ensure the harvest. And then there's this additional interesting bit as well. There's this idea of, uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but Wyas spirits. Uh, they spell it W-A-H-Y-I-S. Mm-hmm. And these would have been auxiliary spirits that live within the body of the possessor, but then are controlled by the possessor as well. It would be something you would acquire through birth or through special petition throughout life. And what would happen is during sleep, the possessor would expel the wagis through their mouth to keep watch on them, to uh, protect them from enemies. Uh, and these would, I think, be supernatural enemies or enemies, you know, su- supernatural enemies summoned by uh, uh, living enemies that could potentially hurt us during, quote, the nocturnal and dream space. So you could breathe the spirit out in the night and it would keep watch over you. But what's the, did the spirit take the form of a turkey? What's the turkey? Connection? At least some of the time, yes, it would take the form of a turkey, Wow, which I, which I think is telling because the, the, the domestic turkey and domestic birds in general, I feel like it's especially in modern times, there is a tendency to degrade them and see them as these um, just stupid um, animals that, uh, that have no, no, you know, mental existence of their own that are just they're just purely domesticated species and we don't really acknowledge them as as anything wondrous and the idea here is that there was a sense of wonder to the turkey there was a noble aspect of the turkey the turkey was seen as something especially this this wild variety is something that that connects us to the spirit world uh, that connects us to the gods and therefore it would be a fitting um animal for this spirit that is a part of us to, to take its form. I think it may be that just the word turkey sounds funny in English, so it yeah. becomes the butt of a joke. Yeah. But but for the Maya, it was, it was somewhat different. The, the authors here also point out that there was at least one Maya king that took on the title of the turkey. Like, that was his his title or nickname. You know, it was an animal that was, that was perfectly suitable to be taken on as kind of the, um, the, 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 the animal likeness of a ruler. Well, I mean, turkeys can look quite beautiful. There is uh, this one you were talking about that's mentioned in this article, the oscillated turkey. Mm-hmm. I mean, God, there's a picture of it um, that, that the authors here include, and it looks so gorgeous. It's even got these – so it has sort of a blue shading on the skin of its head with red lining around its eyes, and then it's even got these strange kind of – like moles or tumor looking things all over its head, these little bulbs that are yellow and the colors all together are, are fabulous. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, even a purely domesticated Turkey that you encounter uh, nowadays, I mean, it is a a fat, it's a big creature, you know, I -hmm. I think if you really stop and look at it and consider it, you can, you can, you'll be impressed by it. But then also of course we have wild turkeys and I, I feel like encountering wild turkeys, if you're fortunate enough to, to encounter them, it can be quite uh, it can be quite a moving experience. Uh, I've even encountered them here in the um, 
the 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 Atlanta area. Yeah, uh, I encountered them at a cemetery once, where they were out walking among the the tombstones, which seems perfect for uh, you know some sort of spirit uh, being. But I also encountered one in my backyard once, uh, which was pretty fabulous because I, I heard other birds the, raising the house you live in now. Yeah, the house I live in now, just in the backyard, you know, very residential type area. But wow. the other birds were raising a ruckus, and I was like, "What's going on back there? Is there a dog in my backyard or something?" No, it was a full blown um, wild turkey, and and these are sizable animals. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I have definitely encountered urban wild turkeys in in Tennessee. Sometimes they'll just wander through neighborhoods in the city. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So I would, in closing here, I would say, if you find yourself this Thanksgiving at the table um, considering the wishbone of a turkey. That you would you would think first of all to the the, the magical the the divinational uh, practices that this bone is tied to you know that you are at least holding on to the vestigial remnants of um, of ancient uh, divination practices and then on the other hand you the bird itself that you are consuming or present or present for the consumption of that this too is a creature with roots in the sacred. I was trying to think of an animal that's commonly eaten in America that is treated with more reverence and respect to compare it to, but then I couldn't think of anything. Maybe it seems like modern American uh, cuisine doesn't just doesn't really honor the animal, does it? No, I mean, I guess you could make a case for the turkey being celebrated more than many of the animals we consume, certainly more than the chicken, because, of course, what do we do? We, we, we include it as part of in our iconography for Thanksgiving every year. Like it is a symbol of Thanksgiving. It is a symbol of a, of a great feast that one has. We have that, you know, ridiculous tradition with uh, U.S. presidents pardoning turkeys. Um, I don't know. I don't know what that's going to happen this year. I don't know how many turkeys are going to be pardoned this year, um, but, uh, but we'll see. <laughs> okay. So I want to move on from Turkey at this point because if if you've had a, a turkey prepared in the traditional American style, which is to um, to cook until the breast meat is so dry you could like play basketball with it, <laughs> you sit down and and it's there on the plate. And what what's going to say? What's going to be the saving grace of this experience? Well, obviously, it's like you would want some kind of hot, fatty, wet. Uh, highly flavored stuff to go on the turkey to sort of revive it, to bring it back from the grave. <laughs> and it turns out that this is actually another centerpiece of the American Thanksgiving tradition, which is the gravy. And I, I so I want to talk about gravy for a bit, but I also want to just bring your attention, Rob, to some ads I found for old, uh, like commercially sold industrial gravy products. So like canned gravies and gravy mixes. Um, uh, one I found is it was in an article that I'm going to talk about in a bit, but it's for the Durkee brown gravy mix. This is a packet mix that you throw in with water. Mm -hmm. uh, and it says all sauce and gravy mixes are made for convenience, but Durkee's is for dining and they this do this is yeah this fancy is great. calligraphy yeah everyone should look this up it's d u r k e e uh -huh. um, Durkees is for dining it has it i mean it it's kind of a snazzy uh looking advertisement it has kind of a madman mad, madman vibe to it you know? yes yes fancy people in suits clearly they're going to be having some canadian club on the rocks or maybe shivas regal with this 
Uh, I love how there's a, a cup of coffee in the scene, uh-huh. uh, which uh, I, I don't know. I, I never drink coffee with my meals for the most part. Uh-huh. But is it the idea? It's like, all right, Thanksgiving's coming at you. You got to let's, let's move this food. Let's let's supercharge the digestive system. I think it's one of those things where they tried to promote new uses for foods to sell more of them in the mid-century. Mm-hmm. So here it's obviously saying, hey, you already you put cream in your coffee. Just do gravy instead. <laughs> But I found another ad. This is for Franco-American beef gravy in a can. It says, easy, economical beef gravy burgers. And it's suggesting that you have a piece of white bread. And on top of that, it looks like just a just a, a, a puck of ground beef. And then you spoon over or ladle over about a gallon of this canned Franco-American gravy. Uh, and the, the copy on this ad is really good, too. It says, made from the juices of selected beef with that genuine roasting pan flavor delicious served hot with any meat and potato dinner on sandwiches in stews or added to make your own gravy stretch and it it hyphenates out the word stretch um so several things here that I, I like the the use of the there's like carefully chosen words made from the juices of selected beef and I, what is the, what work is the word selected doing there? I, to, to, I guess to um, set it apart from random beef. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> made from the juices of beef that was found somewhere. I have to say the photo on this one, though, in black and white and all, uh, it, it, it looks oddly appetizing. I, I feel like my family had some version of this when I was a kid where it would be the, the, the beef patty on top of the slice of bread with gravy on top with the peas on the side. I, 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 I remember being fond of it. Another one of these uh, Franco-American beef gravy ads I found, the, the tagline is just smooth, brown, delicious. Yes. And <laughs> I, I like the idea that it, this actually does tie into some, some food science stuff. The word brown there suggests not just a color, but a flavor. What flavor is it? It's brown flavored. Um, mm-hmm. And that that actually does get to the original heart of, of real gravy. So I was trying to think, how would a Martian describe gravy? And like she, she's making an encyclopedia of Earth life. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be something like gravy is a hot emulsified sauce made by combining fat, starch, and then some glutamate flavored liquid, like a savory liquid thickened to the rough consistency of heavy cream. I think that, that that's about it. Um, but for the non cooks out there, the traditional method of gravy preparation is actually great because it is a sort of natural byproduct of roasting a big piece of meat, which people often do for Thanksgiving. Um, because a gravy is usually based on the fond left over on the bottom of the pan after you've cooked meat via some dry heat method like roasting or pan frying. So as the meat cooks, it releases liquids, it releases fats and juices, and usually the juices will contain a mixture of proteins and carbohydrates, sugars. And as these juices are cooked on the bottom of a pan under high heat, their water content evaporates and they undergo browning. So if there are sugars present, they can caramelize, but then the proteins and the carbohydrates can together undergo this complex suite of chemical changes, collectively known as the Maillard reaction. And the Maillard reaction in particular is the the reaction that's responsible for the fact that browned food usually tastes good. It creates this a lot of complex flavors. It's the browning on the outside of bread when you toast bread. It's the browning on the outside of meat. Uh, It's in coffee. You know, it, it is that good roasty flavor. 
So to make a traditional gravy, after you roast or pan fry a piece of meat, you'll have all this extremely flavorful gunk stuck to the bottom of the pan, all these browned juices. And from here, the gravy process goes to deglazing. So you add some kind of liquid. Usually this is water or wine, broth, maybe spirits. Uh, and then you use the liquid as a solvent to scrape up and dissolve all the browned gunk. And then you usually add some form of fat and starch to thicken the mis mixture. So this can be a roux like butter or rendered fat from the pan mixed with flour or even cornstarch. And then you whisk it all together and you cook it until it's thickened to the consistency you want. And uh, the thickening actually happens two different ways as you cook. The, the starch grains will swell with liquid and burst, releasing carbohydrate molecules they unravel, they mesh together with one another, and that thickens the sauce. But the other method of uh, reducing is just reducing by evaporation as the sauce cooks. And I, I was interested in what brought about the uh, all of these like prepared gravy products because again gravy is it's like a byproduct of cooking, right? Like you've done the cooking and now you've got the basis to make a gravy. How do you get from that to the gravy comes in a pre-prepared? I don't know, can or, or, or mixture, uh, like a powder mixture. How do we get to Durkees is for dining? Uh, <laughs> so I was reading a little article in The Atlantic about this uh, by Alexis Madrigal, and this is about the history of industrial gravy products, specifically powder mixes for gravy. Um, and it, it is interesting to think about the development of instant food products as a real sort of science and engineering challenge, because I know these products are often derided. I mean, we were just making fun of them, but – it, it is it's an, it's an interesting process that led to their development because you've got something that is a, a natural product of some other cooking process. You know what you want the final product to look like, taste like, feel like. Uh, you know what real gravy is and you know what limitations you have to work with. Maybe your way of getting there has to be in a powdered packet or, or cannibal or something. And then you've got to use science to try to get from here to there within your limitations. And Madrigal argues that the history of dry mixes for gravy are really best understood in the context of dry mixes for baking other baking products, which go further back in history. So uh, he mentions that in 1882, there's this inventor named Philip Thorne who files a patent for a just-add-water baking mix, which incorporates flour and baking powder as a leavening agent uh, and, the, the, and also dehydrated butter. Uh, but this did not immediately become a popular product in America. The instant biscuit dough Bisquick entered the market in 1931, but it really wasn't until after World War II that instant baking mixes like Betty Crocker cake mix uh, became very popular. Now, there's one thing I will say about this article, which is that it relays a story that I found very interesting but started to doubt, and this led me down a rabbit trail, but I think this rabbit trail is worthwhile because it ties into things that people also sometimes make and serve at Thanksgiving. So there's this anecdote here that Madrigal shares about how the recipe design for packaged foods isn't just about taste and convenience. It's also about the psychology of the cook. Uh, if you've ever made cake, cake mix from a box, you know, Duncan Hines or whatever – you probably know that there are usually a couple of ingredients that you have to provide yourself. So, you know, the box will give you all the dry ingredients, but then you have to combine it with water, maybe oil and a couple of eggs. Now, uh, the story goes that originally the Betty Crocker brand simply required water and nothing else in their cake mix boxes and that these weren't selling very well. And the reasoning was that the process just seemed too artificial, too impersonal, too industrial. 
Uh, so, so in one influential instance, General Mills changed the cake mix recipe to require the home cook to add their own eggs in addition to the water. And so, hey, suddenly you're not using, you know, just a boxed product. You're actually baking. You added the eggs yourself. Mm. And according to the industry lore, this recipe change where suddenly instead of having uh, dried eggs in the mix already, you had to add your own eggs. This recipe change made the mix a hit. Uh, I even found an article on Psychology Today that was retelling the story, framing it as about guilt and authenticity. Uh, this was supposedly discovered through research by the American consumer psychologist Ernest Dichter uh, that, that home cooks of the 1950s felt guilty serving these delicious cakes that were just so easy to make. And Dichter reasoned that adding the eggs made the process slightly less convenient and thus people felt better about serving these cakes to guests. Well, that certainly makes a certain amount of sense, you know, um, that you would you're, you're doing something other than just following some simple directions and emptying out a can or a box of powder and adding milk, you know, that there is some element of actual baking or food preparation to it that, that makes you feel useful and not just, uh, uh, you know, just, just somebody assembling something. Yeah. And I think there absolutely could be something to the underlying psychology there. I mean, we, you know, people are full of all kinds of interesting psychological quirks that drive their consumer decisions. And sometimes a product will sell, for reasons other than just its, you know, pure value in in whatever objective sense you you want to uh, classify that, but it, the fact that this is such a great historical anecdote, the fact that it's so perfectly TED talky, <laughs> mm -hmm. it, it kind of made the sleeping dragons of the BS detection go off in my mind. So I decided to check, and wouldn't you know it. Snopes actually has an article about this very story. It's by the found, uh, one of the founders, David Mickelson. And my hunch was correct. They rule this story as false. Huh. And the reason they rule it as false is that while this is based on a historical reality, yes, there were these recipe changes to adding fresh eggs. Yes, uh, around the same time, there was increasing uh, use of box cake mixes. But just saying uh, the psychological insight from Ernest Dichter that said you have to add uh, the egg yourself at home, that is what made the box cake mix a success. That massively over oversimplifies things. Uh, for example, it overstates the novelty of the recipe change. There'd been this long running debate in the industry over the trade-offs of requiring fresh eggs at preparation versus using powdered eggs in the mix. It ignores other reasons for the success of the fresh egg recipe. One of them is that a cake made with a fresh egg is usually going to be a lot better. Uh, quote, using complete mixes, which included dried eggs, resulted in cakes that stuck to the pan, had poor texture, had shorter shelf life, and often tasted too strongly of eggs. Huh. Uh, another thing is that it kind of screws up the timeline of cake mix sales and it ignores the simultaneous success of cake mixes that did include powdered egg and it ignores other changes in marketing and advertising that took place simultaneous to the fresh egg recipe. One example is repositioning cake mixes as step one in a larger creative process that involves icing and decoration and things like that. So if, if the cook wanted to feel like they were actually doing something and not just, you know, not just opening a box and that was it, that could come at the decoration stage of the cake. And then finally, I thought this was maybe the most interesting. 
And the story ignores other social changes that led to the increasing sales of box cake mixes in, in the 50s, one of which was that high school home economics classes were increasingly teaching baking based on mixes rather than from scratch. Huh. Just sort of couching it in that case in just the the overall um, shift towards industrial food products, right? Yeah. And so it seems like there's a bunch of different stuff going on here. And th- this story just kind of like – Isol, you know, it cherry picks like a couple of little facts from this period and then makes it a, a self-contained causative story. I'm not sure exactly what it was about that story that set me on alert. I, I guess it just has it has that shape, you know, the shape of a story that is a little too tidy where the solution to the problem is very cutely psychologically revealing. It's the kind of thing that, you know, you, you love to have as an anecdote to lead off your motivational talk. Huh, that's interesting. I mean, I can't help but in, in thinking about just the basic idea of providing your own egg or not. Um, I see this today in some of the box meal kits yeah. that are out there. Um, because on, box meal kits vary. Like, there's some box meal kits that are basically just TV dinners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then but most of the, the more famous ones involve chopping and preparation. But there's one major brand uh, that I won't name because they're not paying us to right now. Um, that includes eggs. And there's another major brand that I won't name because they're not paying us right now that asks you to provide your own egg. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to think about, of course, just the the shipping demands of of mailing eggs to people. Uh, I imagine that is a huge part of it. But but maybe there is also the sense of of preparation, you know, like it is is good to provide your own egg. Uh, It's good that I had to procure my own eggs. I don't know. Or, or think about where my eggs came from, buy exactly the type of eggs that I want, like if I want, uh, you know, uh, cage-free. Yeah, the, that's a good point. And, I mean, the the underlying premise of this uh, story, I, I think, does have something to it, which is that, you know, like we were saying, there there are these different sort of psychological pressures that are operating us when we're making decisions about what types of food products to buy. And those psychological pressures might not be only how does it taste, what is the cost and things like that. Mm-hmm. It could be things about how we feel about methods of preparation or even methods of eating. Here's one thing, you know, Taco Bell they they put the, they give you the sauce packets on the side uh-huh. and there's like the question of like no what's the what why do they give you the sauce packets on the side instead of just putting the sauce on your taco and then handing it off to you i mean there's something that they've reasoned about like people like to be able to put the sauce on themselves that you know the, there's something pleasurable about that process or like being able to determine exactly how much sauce and where it goes and stuff yeah, like well, that yeah well spice control is a big thing you know i mean yeah. you can have that taco as bland as you want or you can you can start, uh, you know, superpowering it with with multiple spicy packs. Well, I also wonder about like box macaroni and cheese. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so th- they'll give you like the cheese sauce fully made in a powdered form or a you know like gooey Velveeta form or whatever ahead of time. Or I think there are some fancier brands that ask you to supply something of your own. You know, use your own butter, or use your own milk. Though that may contribute somewhat to the texture of the f- the final product, but I wonder also if that's like. If you're trying to upsell a brand, you're trying to sell a more expensive box of macaroni and cheese. Is there a, is there a calculation that people will think, oh, this is a more legitimate meal, more legitimate food product if I provide some of my own fresh ingredients? Yeah, is this a meal in a box or is this an ingredient for a meal? Uh, I guess the, the the difference can 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 play a major role in, in whether one purchases it or not. 
But let's get back to the gravy, Joe. Oh, um, yeah. So, where, where does gravy enter the picture again here? Well, thinking about these industrially produced gravy mixes, um, so again, you know, we've, we've said gravy is usually a byproduct of cooking meat. Uh, what is the gravy factory supposed to do? Like you cook a million roasts and then you deglaze the fond or the drippings from that, and then you find something else to do with the meat. I mean, it seems like kind of impractical at an industrial scale. And for this reason, a lot of packaged gravies, you know, they'll have to like use a secondary animal product as the flavoring to begin with, or they in fact maybe have little or nothing to do with the meat they're supposed to taste like. Uh, in this article, Madrigal quotes a food scientist at the university of Minnesota named Gary, a Rhinesius who says uh, the gravy mixes are a little more sophisticated because the flavor from the gravy mix may be a beef gravy, but it's never been near a cow. So you might get a, a beef gravy that just has no beef content at all. Uh, so where does the flavor come from? Well, there, there are all kinds of flavorings. There can be like wheat-based flavorings. Uh, there can be oh, – I mean a big one for gravy mixes in history is MSG, which we've done whole episodes about before. Uh, monosodium glutamate originally – uh, isolated by by Japanese food scientists from uh, from seaweed, and this recreates a lot of the savory flavors that we associate with things like Parmesan cheese or tomatoes mm. or soy sauce or meats. That makes sense. But there has apparently been a huge bugbear in the history of powdered gravy mixes, and that is lumps. So uh, if, if you ever made gravy yourself, you, you might have encountered lumps before. When, when you add starch to a mixture of water and fat, it can be very easy for the starch to form little clumps that don't fully dissolve into the sauce. So uh, if, you, you know, if you get a clump of raw flour or corn starch in your mouth while you're eating gravy, that is very unpleasant. Uh, and on, on, the, on a slightly related note – you should never eat raw flour, by the way. When, when people tell you not to eat raw dough, for some reason they, they only emphasize the presence of raw eggs, but you should be at least as concerned about raw flour because raw flour can easily pick up bacterial contamination like E. coli and other things, um, and bacteria can survive until the flour is cooked. You should think about raw flour in sort of the same way you think about raw hamburger. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, Don't eat it if it's not cooked. So, but, but to, to be clear, you're saying don't eat uncooked cookie dough, right? Well, I mean, it depends. Like, you could make cookie dough from something that is safe. But, yeah, if it's got raw flour in it, you should not eat it. Ah, uh, because it might hurt me? I don't know. I mean, cookie dough is so good. There are outbreaks. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, I think there are things that are safe to use. Like, there, you know, there are companies that sell cookie dough that's just ready to eat cookie dough ice cream and all that. I, I think that does not have raw mm -hmm. flour in it. Or if it does, it's somehow been through a process that renders it safe. Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm not saying one should definitely <laughs> ignore you on this one, but I'm just saying it's it's going to be it's going to be hard uh, to to make this life change when the, the cookie dough uh, or the cake batter or even the pancake batter is often the most uh, uh, the delightful uh, part of the whole process. I mean, I guess it can be. I, I don't know. The, the taste of raw flour, I think, is is kind of gross and chalky on its own. But uh, mm -hmm. there's oh, obviously – no, I mean, I understand the appeal. I mean, I, I've had <laughs> cookie dough too. But no, raw flour can have contamination just like raw meat can. There have yeah. been major outbreaks of E. coli from flour in the U.S. There was one in 2016. There was another one in 2019. Uh, according to the CDC, these sickened at least 80 people. 
Uh, and a fun fact, I was looking up, oh, how exactly does flour get contaminated by E. coli? Does that happen in the factory or whatever? It can happen at multiple stages of the process, but sometimes it appears to be literally just contamination by animal feces in the fields where the wheat is grown. So cool, huh? Oh, man, you're going to ruin cookie dough for everybody, <laughs> Joe. Uh, but back to lumpy gravy. Hey, the, you know, so, so maybe you got some lumps of that same flour in your gravy. Uh, there are ways around lumpy gravy. So first of all, it, it helps to add starch when the mixture is cool instead of hot and then dissolve it before or as the mixture heats rather than adding starch to liquid that's already hot or boiling. Uh, another method is, of course, just good old-fashioned whisking. Just break it up with a whisk. But uh, in reference to a, a patent that he found, uh, Madrigal writes, quote, Home cooks can prevent this simply by stirring the mixture, but that required, quote, considerable skill, mm -hmm. as General Mills' Harold Keller put it in a 1958 patent application. I'm not sure how much skill it takes to stir something or to whisk it, but... Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I've been accused of, of improper whisking before. So, oh yeah, what'd you um, do wrong? Um, I think it was just like scrambled eggs that I, I did not whisk properly. Uh, you know, because you got to get it. You know, it's it's not just stirring rapidly. Like there's mm -hmm. a whole uh, uh, like uh, wrist uh, orientation that needs to be right to do it if you're really whisking something. Yeah. Oh, well, here's a tip actually for, for the cooks out there. Uh, if you want to emulsify something really good with a whisk or fork, you're beating it. Uh, I used to always think it would be best to stir in a circle, but I have read that it is better to go just back and forth side to side than it is to go in a circle because there's actually more uh, mechanical agitation if you go back and forth in a straight line. That, I think that was one of the problems I had mm -hmm. uh, previously is that I would kind of I was whisking like I was stirring rapidly, and I, so I was going in a circle, and I wasn't doing that, that just fast whipping that's more like point A to point B and then back to point A. So you're one of these people who, uh, who, who Harold Keller just thinks d you do not have considerable skill. Correct. You uh, can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm better now. I'm, I'm improving. But, um, but yeah, I, I don't think I was good at whisking up, and, up uh, or passable at whisking until very recently. So was there a way around the, the lump problem? Well, some more food science came in. Uh, manufacturers discovered that, of course, the addition of leavening agents could help a little bit. They could help prevent lumps from forming, uh, and especially if the mixture was, again, added at lower temperatures. But lumps would still come together if you had already boiling water and you poured the mixture in. So finally, the solution to the lump problem was to add long-chain carbohydrates, specifically maltodextrin, in a one-to-one -one ratio. And that sort of gets us up to the instant packet of gravy we know today. Durkies is for dinner. I've got weirder territory to get to even than this, this strange packet of, uh, of, of gravy stuff or gravy like food, uh, because you know that we love the intersection of religion and food. Of course, mm -hmm. I was wondering if I could find any good gravy rituals or gravy superstitions, gravy mythology, I can of... gravy, good gravy. I, I, I wasn't expecting to find anything, but I actually did sort of at least. In a very old classic book of, uh, of religious ethnography, it's coming from a scholar named Uno Holmberg. He's, he's a Finnish scholar of religions. He's apparently also known as Uno Harva. And he wrote in the early 20th century, he wrote a, a, a volume of this uh, big mythology series that was about the beliefs and rituals uh, of what he called the, the Finno-Ugric people. So this is going to include uh, Finnish people and people of – 
uh, much of the northern northern Eurasia, northwest Siberia. So Finnish, if you will. By region, at least. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, they might identify in, as different than Russian ethnically. Okay. And this volume mentions recorded observations of several interesting rituals involving gravy. So the first is in rituals honoring the memory of the dead among some of the language groups of northern Eurasia. Again, this would be like Western Siberia. And among some of these cultures, after a person dies, it is customary to honor them by bringing food to their grave or placing food out somewhere in the dead person's memory. Quote, fish and meat are cooked and together with other eatables placed in vessels either on the ground by the house against the door on the side of the hinges or taken to the cemetery where they are put on the ground above the head of the deceased or below the window of the grave house if there is one. On the ground, tea, gravy, gin, and finally some cold water are poured, whence the term water pouring is derived. Uh, so gravy and gin for the dead. I was also surprised by the specification of gin because I don't usually think of that as uh, the, the the commonest spirit to find in like Western Siberia. But yeah, it makes me wonder if it's specifically gin we're talking about here, or they're just referring to some regional alcohol that might be comparable on some level to gin. Yeah, th- that could some be sort it. of some sort of clear herbal uh, liquor. Another one that I thought was interesting was there there is a memorial gravy practice that Holmberg mentions as taking place among the Finns of the Volga region. And he says that so there are these memorial feasts for the dead in which, quote, at the door near the fireplace, a trough is placed on which, as on the head of a bed, little wax tapers. And I think that would refer to little uh, objects that you would use as if to, like, light a candle with. Little wax tapers are fixed. Into the trough, pieces of meat are thrown and some gravy poured when the names of the dead are mentioned, with an appeal to them to eat and drink and to receive the lately deceased with a contented mind into their company. And so I like this because it it almost seems to mirror the uh, presence of gravy at Thanksgiving. It's like you're using meat and gravy as a kind of bribe or offering to the long dead so that they don't give a cold shoulder to the recently dead and they bring them into the family of the dead. But there's also a description of practices related to the, the killing of a bear by some of the Sami peoples. And I thought this was really interesting. So uh, I'm just going to read this paragraph here. When the flesh is being cooked, the hunters sit on each side of the fire, according to their rank and position. First sits the one who tracked the bear then the interpreter of the magic drum, the bear killers, etc., all according to the importance of the duty which they have had to do during the kill. The vessel in which the flesh is cooked must be of brass, or at the very least ornamented with brass rings. It must be carefully watched during the cooking, as the running over of the tiniest trifle of gravy into the fire is regarded as a very bad omen. Should the gravy commence to boil too violently, it is not regulated by adding water or thinning out the fire, but one of the men must go to the tent to see whether any of the women has caused the trouble by unsuitable behavior. Should nothing blameworthy be found there, the chief person of the gathering— tries to stop the gravy from boiling over by the customary singing, (laughs) singing to the gravy to prevent it from boiling out of the pan into the fire, which would be a horrible symbol of bad luck to come. 
But only if you can't blame it on the women. On the women in the tent, yes. Um, and so, as always, the, you know, this is an older work of, of uh, recorded observations of religious rituals. I, I don't know how this would hold up to more modern scrutiny of what the same tribes would practice, but these are interesting reports. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I have to admit, I, I never even considered the possibility of, of sacred gravy or sacred traditions involving gravy. I mean, the gravy, it, it is a... It, it's it's a liquid essence of the body of an animal, and so if you have yeah. sacred thoughts about the flesh of an animal, clearly uh, there are sacred practices revolve uh, around the hunting of a bear among the Sami peoples. Yeah, I guess I I guess the it comes down to the rendering, you know, like once something is rendered or processed into another food product, this is probably maybe this is more the modern sensibility mm-hmm. where we often want to distance the end result of the food from the animal. So we don't think of, you know, we don't want, to, don't want to think of the pork as the pig. And we certainly don't want to think about the uh, Vienna sausages as presumably a pig. I, I'm not even sure what animal is on right. the other end of that, that uh, foul process. But, but, but at any rate, yeah, it's like the modern sensibility is to think, well, the thing you make out of the animal no longer has any connections to it. You know, we're not supposed to have that connection in place. Whereas that's, completely ridiculous like why wouldn't the gravy of the bear still have bareness to it that is a really good point i I think about this in the psychology of food a lot actually the the denaturing of the food the removal the the ways that you change food and process it so that it no longer resembles or even reminds you of the animal or the plant that it once came from the making of everything into like patties or (laughs) into uh chicken nuggets you know things that that you you couldn't even mistake for a muscle or for a, a part of an animal's body and that's clearly antithetical to some of these sacred practices where you are not only not processing the food so that it's unrecognizable, you are constantly making reference to and thinking about the animal it came from as you eat it. Yeah. I also think it's interesting that you see a lot of this denaturing specifically in foods for children. And I don't know if that's just a quirk of modern American culture or if that's a more common thing around the world and throughout history that you have to – for kids, you have to make foods less resemble the organisms they originally came from. I don't know. What do you think about that? I mean I can mainly only speak to my, my own experience with a child. But in, in, in even this example, there are some contradictions because on one hand, um, it, as soon as he knew the distinction that you know the chicken is this uh, this bird, you know, et cetera, he decided he didn't want to eat those animals anymore, mm-hmm. uh, and has has remained firm on that point. Uh, on on uh, on this, at the same time, as far as marine animals go, uh, it's the complete opposite. Like mm-hmm. like he gets excited about the crabs if he, he has helped to catch crabs before, and he makes him want to eat them even more. You know. And he seems totally into the like the experience of, of eating oysters, um, you know, the opening of the shell and the pulling it uh, pulling it apart. You know, all of the like the, the, the consumption of an oyster is very tied to an understanding of its um, of, it, of its biological origins. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of see both things in him, you know? Well, I mean, that's funny because modern secular oyster culture reminds me very much of these sacred rituals where, uh, like with the bear here, where you're very mm-hmm. much wanting to think about the animal itself and even uh, not wanting to spill any of the liquor out of the shell. You know, you want to get it all in your mouth. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, I, oysters are very ritualized, really at every level. Like, I'm, I'm kind of a, 
I'm still kind of old fashioned with my appreciation of oysters. I like, I like my, uh, my ketchupy, um, horseradish, uh, sauce. Yeah. Uh, I like my saltine crackers and, mm. uh, and, you know, a little bit of lemon. Um, and, and, but that in and of itself is very, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like communion. You yeah. know, you have yeah. these different elements that come together, but then of course you have fancier versions of the same ritual that involve like, like, you know, little, um, uh, little glass tubes of liquid that are poured on top. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it gets, it gets even fancier, even feel, feels even more sacred in its own way. This is the body of Poseidon. Eat this in remembrance of me. Yeah. Now I know we've been talking about a lot of meat products here because they are very central to, you know, a, a traditional Thanksgiving dinner in, in American culture. But I want to add a brief culinary note, which is that if you are a vegetarian, you need not miss out on gravy uh, for the rest of your life because gravy made from mushroom broth, I think is not only as good as gravy made from meat, it's often better. I think probably the best gravy I ever made was mushroom based and you can make these yourself just by like simmering dried mushrooms with aromatic vegetables to make a mushroom broth. Then you reduce that. Then you mix it with a, with a roux or whatever seasonings you want in order to thicken it. Uh, even if you're a meat eater, a good mushroom gravy is absolutely worth trying. It's delicious. Yeah. There was some sort of meal, uh, my family would make when I was a kid and it was, I, I can't remember the details, but I feel like the idea was it was a less, um, fancy cut of meat. Mm-hmm. Well, and and adding a mushroom sauce to it was an essential part of enjoying it. Like it 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 alone elevated this uh, cut of meat to something that was um, was suitable for consumption. I think this brings us back to one of the the core things about how gravy is used. Because uh, and this actually ranges across different types of customs. It's true for the the dry, overcooked, under seasoned turkey that a lot of people would eat. You know, you save it by pouring gravy all over it. But it's also true of say biscuits and gravy. You know, I think that's a recipe that where the gravy was brought in to save just these like gross lumps of you just got to get this food into your body to power yeah. you through the day, but it's this nasty baked product that is, is not very good on its own. Well, you pour some gravy over it. And now it's a hot meal. Yeah. I mean, th- this reminds me of our invention episode on ketchup, which I, anybody who's digging this episode, definitely go look up that episode of on ketchup. It's either in the stuff to blow your mind feed from earlier this year, when we, we kind of dumped a lot of invention episodes in, into the feed or you might have to go over to the invention show feed itself, uh, but but it's a similar history. Like the 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 origin of ketchup is the origin of these various sauces that were created. Uh, oftentimes, it's like a secondary product from the from preserve the preservation of uh, you know fish or whatnot, mm-hmm. and then using these as a way to make potentially vile tasting foods uh, more um, palatable. Yeah. Oh, well, this this also reminds me one of the early recommendations for uses uh, of ketchup in American mm-hmm. cuisine was to add flavor to gravies. No joke. Huh. Wow. So you'd like mix it in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one last bonus fact I just wanted to talk about real quick before we end. Cranberry sauce. Do you have cranberry sauce <laughs> thoughts? Do you like the canned stuff? I, I've seen people say like they don't want it unless it has the the can ribs still visible on it, like it, you know bones poking out under the flesh of a beast. Uh, I, I don't have a particular preference because I'm, I'm but, but I remember growing up, we would the rest of the family would have like a more uh, elegant uh, cranberry sauce that mm-hmm. clearly has a an organic origin. 
But my dad, I believe it was my dad that insisted on, or maybe it was my grandfather, I can't remember. I think it was my dad, insisted on the canned version, mm-hmm. uh, where if it's like clearly it's in the shape of a can, it still has the lines on it, the ridges, and it's just been sliced in half. It's just like a chopped up segment of a pink snake, and you can see its bones yeah. poking out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. As far as traditions go, I kind of love them both. Like, I, Even though I, I don't think I ever ate the canned uh, cranberry sliced up like that, just mm-hmm. thinking about it makes me happy so uh, i guess i'm all for it well uh so i was wondering quickly why is it that cranberry sauce gets so thick like that you know you get the jellied Mm -hmm. version of the can now in the canned product it's possible that some brands will add further things to make it hold its shape even better but that that doesn't necessarily have to be the case because there are natural parts of cranberries that will make it gel quite nicely uh if you just prepare it the right way um and this is a nice reminder that like we've been talking about with with animal products, many of the culinary properties of food are also just straightforwardly the biological properties of plants and animals. It's a strange Mm -hmm. thing to remember. In the case of cranberry sauce, part of the answer of what makes cranberry sauce gel so thickly and hold its shape is a molecule called pectin. Uh, Pectin is a natural polysaccharide that's found in plants, and it works as a type of biological cement that holds plant cell walls together and fruits that are high in pectin will release their pectin content as their cells are destroyed through cooking. And this is one reason that uh, longer cooked cranberry sauces tend to gel together more than a short cooked sauce. will. the longer you cook it, you extract more and more of this biological glue that gets all mixed into the sauce you're making and helps it sort of hold its shape once it sets. Interesting. All right, I know what, what everyone out there is, is asking at this point. You're saying, what about stuffing? I got to know about stuffing. Well, we're out of time, so we're not going to do stuffing this year. Maybe we'll do stuffing next year. Uh, we need to have portion control on this show. Uh, the, the Thanksgiving meal itself is not about portion control, but the show has to be. So as far as stuffing goes, maybe we'll cover it next year, or maybe you can just go listen to our episode about piecrete, and that'll be close <laughs> enough to stuffing uh, for your taste. <laughs> It's a low-carb Thanksgiving, what everyone wants. <laughs> All right. Well, this, this was pretty fun. Uh, I, got to le- I got to learn a few things about turkeys and wishbones that I, I wasn't familiar with. I got to learn about sacred gravy. This, is, this has been great. Yeah. All right. Uh, we're going to let it go then. Uh, we hope everybody, if you're celebrating Thanksgiving or some version of Thanksgiving, we hope that, that goes well. Uh, in the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, if you have the ability to rate, review, and subscribe to the show, we ask that you do that. It's a great way to help out the show. Uh, another thing you can do, and this is, uh, this is kind of mostly for fun, is that if you go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, that will take you to the iHeart page for our show. And there's a, something you can click on there for our store. That'll take you to our t-shirt store. We have a number of different designs. You can get them on a sticker or a shirt or what have you, face mask, I think, even now. And uh, there are several different designs there. Some of them are our logo, and some of them are some other fun things. We have a new shirt in there. It's a Pandora shirt that a listener uh, designed for us, and it's really fun. It's got a Pandora motif, and uh, she's opening the box, and it's releasing these various uh, mythological concepts and ideas. Uh, it's pretty cool. So, yeah, go check check that out. I think there are all sorts of sales going on right now because, of course, this time of year, it's just eternally uh, black. 
Black Friday. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 